Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice and macro research on today's shifting economic and market landscape. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast. Hello, I'm Mark Matthews, Head of Research Asia at Julius Baer, and I'm joined by Bhaskar Laxmanarayan, Chief Investment Officer and Head of Investment Management in Asia at Julius Baer. Hello, Bhaskar. Hello, Mark. Good to be here. In this podcast, Bhaskar and I will showcase Julius Baer's mid-year outlook, and basically what we want to talk about is a world where there's a strong economic recovery, dare I say a boom even. And we call this the cyclical part of the podcast. And then there's also a structural part we want to talk about, which is sustainable investing and adaptive companies. So why don't we start with the structural part first? And Bhaskar, I'll ask you to do just that. Thank you, Mark. This year is going to be the biggest growth the world economy has seen since the 1970s. Wow. We're looking at six and a half percent, Mark. Wow. That's big. For the world economy. That's huge. And it's also good that the world is recovering. Okay, but having said that, I'm going to give you a sort of, maybe it's a poor analogy, uh-huh. but it's been a while since we all took flights. Been a while, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but when we did take flights, there was this one sort of negative thing you always was there, which was turbulence. Oh, yeah, I don't and like some, turbulence. And sometimes you hit really bad turbulence and the, you know, the flights went up and down. Yeah. And you sort of hear sometimes people screaming. Have you ever had that, Mark? Actually, Bhaskar, I have a couple of times and <laughs> I was one of the screamers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't it's like not turbulence. <laughs> well, that's it's a bit like that today in in the world. Oh. You know, I think we saw a huge correction last year. Sure, when the world was looking like it was going to be completely shut. Sure, and then the world adapted itself. Yeah, and as you say, we're coming back very fast. Six and a half percent GDP growth. We came back so fast. We came back so fast. We're going to exceed any kind of expectation. We are beating all expectations. This happens on the economic front. It's happening on activity. It's happening on profitability. Yeah, right. It's huge. And therefore, it brings up the other noise factor, which like is? turbulence, yeah. you have inflation. Inflation, yes. Who knows? And nobody likes inflation beyond a certain point. You want some inflation, but you don't want too much of it. It's like the price is right kind of thing. And here today, I think the chances are that many people do believe that inflation is going to be sticky or it's going to continue going mm-hmm, up. Mm-hmm. But And this is a problem. Why is that? Because if rates go up, inflation keeps going up, rates go up. Oh, yes, of course. And if rates go up, it brings down one of the biggest reasons as to why we've enjoyed such an easy monetary policy. We've had a fair amount of liquidity. Yeah. Financial assets have benefited from the same. Yeah. So all of that gets called into question, should that happen. Of course, the general read, and especially from the Federal Reserve, is that this inflation is transitory. Yeah, but it's hard to believe that when these commodity prices are up 50% in the last 12 months. That it is. But having said that, we are on the camp that we believe that the commodity prices are near the peak. We still don't believe that we are in a huge investment cycle which calls for such a large commodity usage. I think there's a delta factor, which obviously the pent-up demand, the huge growth that we have seen, the resurgence in activity around the world, all of this is causing some supply shocks and some price movement. So you wouldn't be running out and buying copper today? I wouldn't. And we're not saying that as a house uh, view as well, uh, Mark. So it is true that the inflation number is likely to exceed the so-called 2% target for the year and is likely to stay a little elevated. 
But if you are to look a year or two out, this number is not going to go higher, but chances are it's going to trend back down to near that 2% target inflation rate that people, that like a central bank, like Federal Reserve tends to have. So more like what happened after the global financial crisis than the 1970s. Absolutely. And in a way, I think one thing is that we have to realize we've lived in a very, at least a decade plus of extremely low inflation. I think that's possibly history. So we should accept some stickiness to inflation, but it won't be something that will derail uh, the monetary policy, okay, or affect asset prices in a very significant way. To put it differently, which is also why we say you should continue to like the new economy stocks, the growth stocks, because we don't think these are under threat. And the other way to think about this is if you went back 100 years, you should not be owning the buggy with Wakeners, even though that was the in-season thing then, or the whale oil yeah. sellers, right? That was the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution was coming. And people who sort of saw that and started buying the next idea was what was critical, the next growth, right? So we still want to be in these new economies, which we still think are the next growth areas, right? So that's why we want to be there. But I know that not everybody is convinced about this inflation story, uh, Mark. Do you have a different take on this? I do, because, and let me put it this way, as a student of history, I uh, remembered one thing from my studies, which was the Black Death in Europe six centuries ago that killed many millions of people. Strangely, its longer-term effects were largely salutary because it reordered the power between capital and labor. and Basically, it was the beginning of the creation of the middle class in Europe. Before then, it was serfs and lords. So I feel like something a little bit like that's happening today, Baskar, because COVID has unleashed a populism in the United States, in my opinion. I haven't seen this, you know, in my entire life. I think you have to go back to Lyndon Johnson. I, so true. I was alive when he was president, but I was a baby. <laughs> Maybe you have to go back to Franklin Roosevelt. And so, in fact, I remember uh, Bernie Sanders said uh, recently, he compared Biden to Roosevelt. He said, like Roosevelt, Biden understands that this country faces a series of crises, and you've got to think big, not small, to address those. And so, anyway, Baskar, coming back to inflation, let me just say, American Rescue Plan, American Jobs Plan, American Family Plan, Add those up, they're $6 trillion. That's big. I think it's 30% of last year's GDP. So, I mean, I'm not going to answer your question. I'm going to ask you another question. How can inflation be transitory when we've got fiscal stimulus that is 30% of last year's GDP? The first thing I would point out is what you said, and which is so critical, I think, about capital and labor. I think that equation is shifting again. Pendulum is swinging back in favor of labor. You know, we call this the state-sponsored capitalism. Part of that brings with it what you just talked about in terms of Bernie Sanders and what Joe Biden has to do. It has to be big, and it has to save, in a way, the disenfranchised, right? So you sort of equate a bit more There's the situation in the world. Balance things out. Balance things out. And when you do that, yes, it's got to be a big plan. And so, therefore, when you talk about just the jobs plan and the family plan, which is $4 trillion in itself, right, it's big. And... Yes, it will have some inflationary impact, but let me talk about that in a minute. First of all, it's spread over 10 years. And where is this going to happen? It's going to really reach the lower echelons of society. Which is what it's meant to. Which is what it's meant to, right? But this is to keep the daily spend going, right? So this is to go oh, out okay. and buy things from the CVSs mm. and the 7-Elevens of yeah. the world, right? Staples. So it's staples. So I think you see some possibly price stickiness 
I don't think it leads to a rampant inflation, right? So I think that's the first thing to think about. The second thing when you look at growth and inflation is, is this. Much of the growth that's being enabled in this world is digital. It's the new economy. You could call it the digital economy. And with every time that this has happened, it's led to price efficiencies. And I don't know if you remember this, Mark. I mean, you know, back in the days, we all went to a shop, bought whatever was there, and that was it. Now, nobody does that anymore. <laughs> Everybody compares prices. <laughs> you know, I, I have to say I, I agree because even though I'm a dinosaur when it comes to e-commerce, I have a personal anecdote, which is that I like making cocktails, Bhaskar, as you And know. I love drinking the ones well, that I make. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And so before COVID, I'd go buy my bottles in stores and I didn't have time to go shopping, you know, many different stores. I'd just go into a store and buy what I wanted. But with COVID, I switched to buying online and I found... Uh, just shows you what I'm a dinosaur I am because I think everybody else was doing this 10 years ago. But just with a few clicks, I could get a much cheaper price than I got in the stores. So true. And that's the efficiency factor. So this efficiency frontier on cost, in a way, at the retail level is going to continue. And one of the things, if you were to see in the last decade or even two decades, the biggest spend for most corporates have been on technology. Yes. Right? But what is really crazy is last year, the American corporates spent an additional 30% on technology. Wow, 30%, that's huge. And I think that's huge, right? I mean, we've never seen those kind of numbers, and that's possibly because of the COVID situation. For sure. People, people were forced to work offline, and you know, it was everybody had to do things remotely, and therefore there was a large technology spend everywhere. But it just shows you that this is a continuum. This sort of deflationary pressure that technology will bring is not going away. Interesting. And therefore, in a way, again, going back to that inflation topic, yeah. we think it's possibly overstated at this point than the other way around. Oh, I hope so. But the growth is real. The growth is real, Bhaskar. And I, I think one thing worth mentioning, going back to that progressive philosophy of Joe Biden's is, you know, in other words, looking out for the little guy. Uh, you know, what fascinates me is it's been embedded into monetary policy too. And once again, in my entire career, I've never seen something like this, but Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell, he says that every day he drives past a tent city on his way to and from work and uh, tent cities where the homeless people live. And he said, we just need to keep reminding ourselves that even though some parts of the economy are doing great, there's a large group of people who aren't doing great. And he's referring really specifically to minorities and women people who've been hardest hit by the job losses. And he said, we're not going to forget about those people. Yeah, he, he said they, they were left on the beach. We're going to go get them. So it's sort of a World War II analogy, I guess. And so, you know, the thing is, the monetary policy, particularly if you're right about the inflation, is going to stay very loose until all those people have been helped. And, and so we actually don't see rates going up this year. We don't see rates going up next year. We don't even see rates going up in America until the very end of 2022, which is a long time from now, Bhaskar. Mark, when, I, when we say rates, we're really referring to the policy set Fed rates. Fed funds rate, yes. Exactly. Yeah. So just so that people know, oh, because sure. the yield curve can move on its own, but the chances are the near-term rates are going to be held. Right. So I just find it's very ironic because most people think America's very capitalist economy and society, and it's less socialist than everybody else. But I can tell you the Canadians aren't doing this. The Bank of Canada said last month it's going to start scaling its bond buying back. It's going to accelerate its timetable for raising rates. 
the austerity trap. Yeah. Austerity trap. And, and you know, the austerity in the Europeans and the Germans in particular is very hard to shake. So they have hawks in the ECB and their politicians are, are, you know, a lot of them are saying they don't want a recovery plan. So anyway, I guess what I'm trying to say, getting back to this economic boom, is it's in America, it's really a consumer story. And the containment of COVID was such a disaster last year. But Baskar, you know, they've been one of the best in vaccinations. I think they've vaccinated half of their population, True. 46%, almost the same thing. And I don't know if you saw yesterday that the Center for Disease Control said in America, if you're fully vaccinated, then you basically can stop wearing a mask and, and gather with however many people you want. They're opening up. And it pains me to say this, but the world of the future is going to have COVID in it. It's not going away. So you've got to have these vaccination programs. And you've got to learn to live with it. And learn to live with it. And then you can open up because you'll be able to keep the virus at bay, which is what America's doing. So when you put these two things together, the fiscal stimulus, the COVID receding in the rearview mirror in the United States, that means a consumption boom. And so what we like, Baskar, is small caps, which yes. is companies whose value is less than $2 billion because first, they are small, so not a lot of analysts cover them, so they're not promoted as much, so they're, they're cheap. Second, they're businesses that aren't so much structural, but they're more tied to the ups and downs of the economy. Yeah, and they which, benefit from the boom that's happening. Exactly. And the last thing is that small businesses in America are mostly, uh, what's the word for it? Domestic. Domestic. Yeah, yes. local. You know, local. So they're not, they're not local big business. international companies, multinational. They do business domestically. And so I wanted to say that, that we're uh, fans of small caps in the U.S. It's really true that the growth that we're seeing in the U.S. is now possibly has legs and will benefit these small cap companies. Yeah. But at the same time, Mark, one other economy that's actually we should talk about is China. And here it's a bit of a surprise because China is possibly the most normal economy that we can speak of from as compared to the pre-COVID times. Right? I was just speaking to a friend this morning in Shanghai. He was telling me the restaurants are booked. People are taking planes. Everywhere. The movement is, com I mean, there is really, I'm in touch with it again, there is no sign of uh, the virus in, in China. It, it's possibly the least impacted today. The monetary policy is as it should be. The fiscal policy is as it should be. The yield curves are as it should be in any normal economic situation, right? So they are the most normal. But what's also surprising then is that you've had one of the worst performance out of the Chinese market year to date. Yeah, down about 6%, I think. As against the world being up almost 8 Okay, yes. And it's not that China is not growing. China is growing pretty healthy. Exactly. So it's weird. Why is that happening? And I think part of that is possibly a little bit from the regulatory side, where I think they're trying to be a little overcautious, in my opinion. And you've said, you know, you've heard them say things like, side effects have emerged from the fiscal and monetary policies of developed countries. I think they're definitely talking about the US. The regulator said that. Yes. And this could be also a little bit of hint about the general way the developed economies have printed money over time and have had very loose monetary policies. They've also said, we're worried about which day the financial market, especially foreign financial asset bubbles, will burst. So they've been very specific about foreign financial asset bubbles bursting. And they will want to study it. They want to be sure that these do not affect and they cannot afford to have such fluctuations in the domestic market. So they're almost forcing those fluctuations to happen ahead of time, in my, in so my view. self-induced correction. It's a bit of a self-induced correction. You know, we've seen them do this in different ways. I think they, they understand possibly what a central power source is. 
more than anybody else. And you saw them come down heavily on gaming stocks in 2018, if you remember that. I remember that, yeah. And now they've done that with a much wider set of companies, if you see. Digital economy. Digital economy. They're worried about the kind of power that digital economy is providing to some of these companies. You know, there are some, yes, it is true that when you, with power comes always a bit of negative working uh, solutions. For example, one is called forced exclusivity. I don't know if you heard about that, Mark. But this is where the internet giants tend to come down heavily on mom and pop shops by telling them you can only work with only me. Only use me. Yes, it's an exclusivity arrangement. So if you're a restaurant, you can only use one platform. They, exactly. If you use so others, you, they'll you ban you. You take away choice in, in that sense, right? It's a sort of a monopolistic bad behavior. That's certainly monopolistic. <laughs> and these are the things I think that China wants to avoid. And I think it's right, right? But at the same time, if you were to look at online penetration, it's at 26% or 27% as we speak, and then possibly it's going to go double that possibly in the next five to 10 years. So chances are this growth is going to be unabated. You can put some restrictions, you can change or modify behavior to some extent, but the growth is not going away. Sounds to me, Bhaskar, like the margins might come down, but the revenues are going to remain very strong. Absolutely, which is why you need to continue to own these sort of growth stories, going back to the growth story emphasis that we've been talking about through this call. Well, especially because those big internet names in China, they're down about 25 to 35% from where they were in February now. To me, they are cheap right now in, in, in a relative sense, and I would definitely be a buyer of those. Well, Bhaskar, we've addressed the uh, cyclical or economic part of our mid-year outlook. Let's switch gears and look at the structural themes, sustainable investing and adaptive companies. And maybe I can take sustainable investing and, and you can do adaptive companies. Uh, it's, this, is a, this is a key part again. It is. It's, so we're really not talking about you know, the here and now of the economy. We're talking about big structural changes. And sustainable investing is a way of investing that's going to be one of the major themes of this decade, no matter what happens to interest rates or politics or anything else in the story, you I could tell, say it's unavoidable in a way. It is absolutely unavoidable and absolutely unstoppable. And I think I said this in a podcast last year, Bhaskar, but I'll say it again anyway, that back when our ancestors lived in villages and they could see what each one was doing to the environment. Well, if you went and fouled up the water or fouled up the fields. You're not making friends. Not making any friends. And so in the modern world, we don't get to see the impact of what we do. And I use an example of something as simple as a hamburger or a bottle of uh, plastic bottle of water. You just think, oh, it's just a hamburger. It's just a plastic bottle of water. But now we're starting to realize it's millions of hamburgers, millions of plastic bottles. And that means millions of tons of factory farm effluent, antibiotics. You know, these plastics are now even in the deepest parts of the ocean and, and hamburgers and plastic bottles and, and many other things that we use in our day-to-day -day lives, they require huge amounts of energy and that causes greenhouse gas emissions and those concentrate in the atmosphere and, and they trap heat and they cause the world's temperature to rise. So that's a well-known story. But I think there's a recognition, Bhaskar, increasingly over time that the targets we've been using up until recently, like GDP growth for politicians, profit growth for CEOs, just applied on their own, actually are... Enhanced the bad behavior. They do, and they're not good for the environment. They're not good for society if all you're focused on is growth and you don't think about these things. So new targets are being set, so-called ESG targets. And uh, I know a lot of people who don't believe in this stuff, I've got to say. But I tell them, no matter what your personal opinion is, even if you don't believe in it, the fact is this idea is not going away. 
it's going to get bigger because the younger people do believe in it, and they're going to have more and more say as they inherit wealth and power over the next 10 years. So as simple as it sounds, avoiding this, as you rightly said, Bhaskar, it's impossible. This is reality, and we should invest along these lines because these companies that don't meet the criteria, the ESG criteria, are going to be increasingly ostracized by governments, by society, by investors, and the ones that do will be rewarded. Absolutely, Mark. In fact, one of the things that I believe always in is in economics of things. Mm -hmm. And ESG is actually a profitable economics, right? Interesting. These, and it's been enabled by the technology enhancement that we've seen over the last couple of decades. It's an excellent point because when this theme started, which I recall was sort of in the uh, 2000s or uh, late, uh, late uh, 90s. Something like yeah. that. It wasn't really seen as being profitable. You're right. Things like solar panels. It was work. almost looked as a charitable thing yeah. to do rather than, than a profitable thing to yeah, do. But you're right now. I think solar is the cheapest energy in the world. Absolutely. And therefore, this, and that's why I believe that ESG is even more a strong proponent of, I mean, it should be a, of any portfolio construct because that's the way things work from now on. And it is a profitable way to invest. Right? There's one other aspect of the same thing, which, you, as you mentioned, is being adaptive. Yeah, adaptive companies. And what do we mean by that? Let me go back and say what we started at the beginning, you know, buggy whip makers and whale oil yeah. sellers. <laughs> <laughs> if they had adapted, they would have survived. If they had seen the industrial revolution coming, they would have adapted. I just have to tell you, actually, my family was in the buggy whip business, believe <laughs> it or not, <laughs> uh, 100 plus years ago. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> So it's all about adapting, as, as we know, right? So, and if you look at this, this is the same thing with the digital revolution. You have to constantly innovate. You have to adapt. And if you were to look at innovation as a theme, BCG claims that now 65% last year, 75% this year of companies have innovation as their top three priorities, huh. right? So I'm not saying all of them will get it right. But the fact is, more and more people are realizing... The fact is, most companies realize they've got to they do have something to do it. if they want to survive. Absolutely. And we've seen that with so many things. We've seen that with, like you said, solar. You know, we've seen that with the wind. Yeah. Uh, we've seen that with all of the whole green energy spectrum. But we're beginning to see that with other things. We're beginning to see that as things go online, cybersecurity is becoming such a key element. For sure. You need to have the ability to things have distributed, which means cloud computing becomes very critical in the way you think about things. Everything cannot be now just have humans. You need to automize something. You need to make them programmable. So artificial intelligence becomes part of anybody's product mapping, anybody's business plan, yeah. uh, so to speak. And all of this also leads to the next one big topic that we talk about every time, digital health. Health is getting digitized in more ways than we can think of. Huh. You can now meet doctors without ever having to see them. You can get your everything read, you know, online. There is actually surgeries that are done by robotics. Yeah, I've heard and, of that. And the entire biopharma space at its infancy as we speak. So I think the changes here are going to be dramatic over the next 10-year period. Wow. And all of these are what we call as places where one needs to adapt. Okay, and companies that do will survive and be the big winners, and we need to find them and invest in them, right? So just to put things all together, Mark, in conclusion, we talked about the fact that this is going to be a fantastic year for growth, but that brings with it the big debate on inflation, which is likely to cause a certain amount of volatility in markets, but we think the best approach is to stay invested because we do believe growth is real while inflation is transitionary. We do believe are transitory, and therefore we do believe that this is something that you are much better off staying invested. Small caps in the U.S. present a unique opportunity. That's right. Right. 
uh, especially what you said about being domestic and the strong and the strong summer months. And then long term, we talked about being in the innovative segment. We talked about being in the socially responsible, the ESG segments, and those companies that will adapt to the new future. All of these are critical components of the structural plays that one needs to have in the portfolio mix. With that, on behalf of Mark and all our colleagues at Julius Baer, thank you for listening and goodbye until next time. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. The podcast content is intended for information purposes only and does not constitute an offer, a recommendation or an invitation by or on behalf of Julius Baer to buy or sell any securities, security-based derivatives or other products or to participate in any particular trading strategy in any jurisdiction. Julius Baer does not accept liability for any loss arising from the use of the podcast content. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.